Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. So I think that uh, that he's going to be telling us a lot about building and scaling, a lot about like how you engineer, you know, like uh, the the early stage, uh, the early stage or the early days of a hyper growth company. <laughs> and I guess uh, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today so that he can tell us more about it. So without further ado, Will Glasser, welcome to the show today. Hi, Andrew. I'm really glad to be here. So, originally born and raised in Berkeley, California. So, how was saying life there, Will? <laughs> That's great. You know, I love Berkeley. It, it's like no other place on earth. It, it's full of very smart people with very independent thinking. But boy, are the folks here not all the same as each other. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And and why did you? Because obviously, on the West Coast, I mean, you have amazing universities, amazing education. How do you land on the East Coast? Well, my dad was a professor at Berkeley, professor of physics, and then later microbiology. And so you really can't go to school where your dad cast the shadow that my dad cast. So I, <laughs> so I went about as far away as I could go without leaving the continent, which landed me at Cornell University. Got it. And there you studied mathematics and then also physics. So, so why did you go with, with, this, uh, with this type of studies? In fact, I did a triple major, computer science, mathematics, and physics. And computer science is the, is the field in which I earn my living. Um, mathematics, I consider to be a, a tool set. So if you're a carpenter, you have hammers and nails. And if you're a metal worker, you have lathes and, and welding machines. And if you're in computer science or in physics, for that matter, mathematics is a, is a toolkit. And physics is sort of a hobby. It, it, it was an interest of mine in how the world works. But I, I rarely, rarely, rarely get to use what I learned um, there in my profession. My profession is computer science. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because obviously all these different things are all towards problem solving. So I guess uh, growing up, I mean, was there like a specific point in time where you were like super attracted to resolving complex problems? Well, you, you know, I had, a, I had a little bit different upbringing than many folks. So I have kids of my own and kids ask questions about the real world. They ask questions like, you know, why is the sky blue? And why does that little puddle of water at the top of a candle not put out the flame? And why is that crazy person on the street of Berkeley yelling at a parking meter? And just by happenstance, my parents were the kind of people that could answer those questions. And so I grew up not believing in magic. I grew up in the idea that any question you can pose has an answer. 
And the only question is, do you know someone who knows the answer? Do you have to figure it out for yourself? And it gave me an interest in a lifelong interest in learning. Very cool. And then obviously for you, once you got your studies there on the East Coast, then you returned back to the West Coast. And uh, then he was uh, going at it in Silicon Valley. So, so what was that like? You know, I came to Silicon Valley in in the early days, and again, it was it was it was the time of of expansion. Like there were still parts of the valley that were empty fields that had been apple orchards, and buildings were going up, and people were inventing and building things all around me. And I was the young, wide-eyed kid, and I got involved right away. And so my career has been starting and running companies and helping others do the same in a variety of technologies: some hardware, some software, some SaaS around the, the fields of technology, but all around building newness of one form or another. And before one of your biggest um, uh, success uh, stories, obviously with Pandora, you went at it with uh, Hydro Systems. So what did you do there? Hydro Systems was, a, was an interesting company. So, so we started out with the idea of cloning the Apple Macintosh. And so we, we, we reverse engineered and re-engineered the Apple Mac but then rather selling it as a standalone PC, we sold it as an add-on card that went inside an IBM compatible back in the days when, when people put cards inside compatibles. And so if you bought a standard PC and bought the Hydro card, you would have a computer that would run all Mac software and all PC software and interoperate between the two and all at a price performance point below either one of them. So it was a very powerful machine that was more compatible than anything else you could buy in the day. So whatever happened with the business? Well, you know, I, I, made a, I made a mistake. So Microsoft came out with the early version of Windows, and I saw it, and I thought to myself, boy, the main advantage that Apple has over Microsoft is the user interface, the desktop windowing interface. The main advantage that Microsoft has over Apple is scale and the enterprise approach to business. And boy, if Microsoft starts selling a Windows, Apple's really in trouble. And in fact... I was sort of right in that that version of Windows um, led to the demise of that version of Apple, but I was really wrong about the timescale. It took them many years for that to happen, and then Apple recovered, and that's a whole other story for another podcast. But um, I panicked. I, I saw the demise of my company, which lived at the intersection between those two behemoths, as going away and hired a new CEO whose job was to sell the company. And he sold the company. We got out. The investors all made money. But boy, if I had been more patient and built the company for three or five more years, it would have been a much bigger exit. But I, I guess I saw the future and didn't quite appreciate how slow um, business moves around technology sometimes. It was an error. Got it. So then what happened next? So I went to consulting. And the, the bulk of the consulting I did at the time, we're talking about the 90s now, was uh, tech turnarounds for businesses that were somehow in trouble. There was an engineering project over budget or behind schedule, or somehow they weren't meeting predictions, or it was new product architectures for a large organization wanting to get into a new market. Okay. And then, obviously, this uh, eventually led you to Pandora. So, so tell us about that transition and, and how did the idea of this incredible company, iconic company, really, you know, came to life? Yeah, the, the original idea was, was weirdly not music, but it was videos. So back in the day, you used to rent videos. And the idea was in a video rental store, which don't exist anymore, you would decide what to rent based on what you had seen and what you had liked, but not what you hadn't yet seen. And so the prediction problem is difficult. How do I know 
what I want to buy, what I want to watch. And standing there in the, in the, in the aisles of the store, I, I had the, the early stages of, of an invention, of the concept that I wanted to, to work on. And then I went away and spent a couple weeks with a, you know, a notepad and a pencil and invented the actual algorithm. And the algorithm that became Pandora presumes to understand human taste, artistic taste by humans in, in pieces of art, which is to say music. And it does it using a computer. And so raising money for Pandora was a challenge because I had to convince people not only that music was about to move from physical plastic discs online, but that I, some kid relatively fresh out of school, was able to teach a computer to understand subjective human taste in art and then evolve that taste forward over time. And those ideas are now called personalization and machine learning. We didn't have either of those at the time. We just called it the algorithm. But um, that was the genesis of Pandora, the, those, those, those couple of ideas that one could do it and that the solution was in math. Correct. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like probably they thought you were crazy because here we're talking about the 90s and now everyone is talking. Everyone, every single founder that I talk to, they're telling me like some form of artificial intelligence. Like it seems like everyone is doing it now. But back then, probably they thought you were from a different planet. Absolutely. We, we, we pitched a lot of venture people that thought we were out of our minds. And, you know, at the time I thought, why can't you see it? But now in hindsight, I guess I, I appreciate how unusual it was. So I guess, uh, how did the founding team come together, Will? So we were three acquaintances. Um, in hindsight, we're, we're friends now, but at the time we, we knew each other, but not particularly well. There was me um, to do technology and product. There was John, who was the business guy and Tim, who was a musician. And John and I had each started and run companies before and had exits of, of, of medium success. I wouldn't say stratospheric success, but John and I were, were moderately successful entrepreneurs. And Tim was a musician. And we started the company that way. John left fairly early for reasons that don't have a lot to do with the company, have to do more with his personal arc than anything else. And when John left, I took over everything inside the walls of the business. So I was already running the entire tech team and the product team, but I took on finance and facilities and operations and, you know, everything inside legal, everything inside the company. Tim took over everything outside the company, investor relations and business development. Um, and the two of us, Tim and I ran the company for years. I, I, I was there for the first five years and then left after that. Tim stayed on for quite a bit longer than that. And, and we built the company to when the technology was ready to begin scaling. And for you, Will, I mean, obviously, here you are, someone that has studied computer science, mathematics, physics. Like, how is it like going from engineering to all of a sudden here you are, like, you know, managing people and operations and business stuff? Like, how is that transition? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. I I've prepared for it all my life in a certain sense because dinner table conversation for two decades with my dad, the scientist, is he wanted to figure out what projects he should work on that were so hard, he probably couldn't do it, but that if he could, it would advance the frontier of science. That's how he chose a project. I, as the entrepreneur, wanted to choose a project that was so hard that most people probably couldn't do it, but that I probably could, and that also made business sense. And so my projects had to not only work, they had to be repeatable, and they had to make financial sense. So, so I used to joke with him that my job was way harder than his, which is always fun to say to a scientist. Very cool. So then I guess in, in this case, how were those early days really of, of Pandora, Will? You know, they, they were not dissimilar from the early days of Gurbango. The, the two companies are similar in a lot of ways. 
So both companies are solving a very human problem, which is to say a problem that I have because I'm a human and the problem that that my wife has and that her family has and that strangers that live in another state or another country have as well. We all hate waiting in line in the case of Gerbango, and we all want access to more music in a more organized way in the case of Pandora. And for both companies, the solution is mathematics. So, that, so in both cases, the solution is to solve the problem using this tool set that I fell in love with as a college kid, build a team that has an overlapping set of skills to go after it, build a product, then wrap that product in simplicity so we can all use it and then ship it to the world. And so in the case of Pandora, it's take all the mathematics and musicology and put it behind a search box, a play button, and a thumb up and a thumb down. In the case of Grabango, it's use a store with the part of the store you want, which is to say the shopping and the products, and skip the part of the store you don't want, which is to say the line. So they're sort of similar companies in that way. Very nice. And we're going to be talking about Grabango in just a, in just a little bit. But in, in Pandora, uh, in Pandora's case, I know that, I mean, obviously you guys, uh, it ended up being like an incredible uh, company, but I know that when it comes down to really doing the hyper growth route, you need money. And during the, um, the, the economic downturn and, and especially the, the bubble bursting, I know it was super tough to really secure financing and incredible what uh, you guys went through and, and also your employees. So would you mind just telling us about this experience? Sure. So, so the first funding round we did to start the company, and John and I both had very strong track records going into the company. And so raising that first round during a dot-com boom was relatively easy. I don't want to say it was trivial, but, but rel comparatively speaking, it was, it was not a heavy lift. But we ran the company and, in fact, grew it through the dot-com recession. And during that time, raising money was very difficult. And in particular, raising money for a B to C, which is, say, a company selling products to consumers, was, was impossible. And so we abandoned the dream of radio and became technology providers to others, companies like Tower Records, AOL, Barnes & Noble, those sort of borders, books, and music. Uh, other brands that already had relationships with customers, we would be the tech provider behind them. And even then, even with the B2B business model, which the Valley was preferring at the time, raising money was very, very difficult. And there were times where we ran out of money. And so what we'd have to do is during that period, we would have to stand up in front of the all hands meeting and announce to the team, we have the money in the bank to make your payroll for the present period, but we don't have the money in the bank to make the payroll for the next period. We're working to raise it. We may raise it, we may not. We're using our best efforts, but I cannot stand here and promise you you'll get paid for the next pay period. If you need to leave, I will not blame you. I'll understand there'll be no hard feelings. And if you're able to stay, we're going to founderize you. And founderize is a word we invented at the time. And the thinking was that in the early days of startups, founders often work for free in exchange for equity. And of course, all the employees of that company, um, uh, Pandora and certainly of Gerbango today, um, have equity in the company. So when the company succeeds, everyone succeeds. But we gave them additional equity as interest on the loan of their salary. So if you can forego your salary for the, for the upcoming pay period, um, work essentially for free, we will endeavor to pay back that debt and then give you a bonus of the um, stock options. And this happened a number of times, and we were probably at the end of the day, a million dollars in debt not to wealthy investors, but to regular employees. And that was a pretty heavy burden that these people were betting their past by this point, because every time you opt, you opt in, 
um, the money goes by, they're past salary on our ability to fundraise and build the company. And it turned out, okay, we raised the money, we paid back everyone dollar for dollar, plus the additional equity. And in fact, those people that were able, that were in a financial situation to be able to stay with us did fabulously well. We made many millionaires from that period of time when Pandora went public. There was a lot of success to go around and all those people shared in it. And, and there were I, a few people that weren't able to. There were a few people in a financial situation where they couldn't forego salary and they had to leave. But um, the vast majority were, were thankfully able to stay and, and became the core of the company. And typically when, when events of this nature happens is really where it builds the culture no? and, and, and that uniqueness uh, of the team uh, that all work together behind the trenches. What do you think you know, were probably like the, the two or three characteristics you know, that made this team so unique? Oh my goodness, the, the Pandora team was phenomenal. They, they, they were among the smartest group of people I had met at the time. And they were incredibly committed to the mission, which is to say they, along with, with me and Tim and John in the earlier days, saw the vision, un understood that not all people have the same taste. There is no such thing as good music and bad music. There is just the music that I like and the music that you like, and it's different, but neither is better or worse. And that fundamental perspective drove the whole company and everybody really wanted the product to work and were super committed to making it happen. And they were good to each other. They, they, were, they were kind people, kind people working towards a common good. And, you know, as a consultant, particularly as a consultant who does tech turnarounds, you often see really messed up cultures where they've hired the wrong people or they've hired the right people and they've created an environment where it's difficult to succeed or people are focused on something other than building the product. And, you know, that, that dual experience of, of being able to build Pandora just the way I wanted it and to be parachuted into the most dysfunctional organizations in corporate America, that dichotomy of my career get, got me really clear that companies succeed or fail based on execution, and execution is 100% about the team. And so it, it's, really, it's really crystal clear to me that you, you, need, you need an amazing team to do anything amazing. And we built that at Pandora. We're building that at Grabango. And it really, really matters. And that was the team at Pandora that pulled us through and built the product. And that's the team at Grabango here today that's doing the same. That's amazing. And obviously, the rest is history. And Pandora was later going public. And then also, it got acquired for $3.5 So pretty amazing. So, so in this case, Will, uh, for you, you know, your next uh, rodeo is uh, Grabango. So tell us about Grabango. How, how did you incubate the concept and bring it to life? So, so I'm a technology nerd, and so I follow a lot of technologies that I don't work in as a, as a fan, as sort of a tourist. And one of the technologies that sparked my interest among many was the DARPA Grand Challenge to pilot a, a car across the desert with no humans on board, driver, the beginning of the driverless car era. And I didn't follow it because I ever thought I'd work in it. I followed it just because I thought it was cool. And I learned about the technology, and in the early days, it worked very badly. And then maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, one of the component technologies, computer vision in particular, powered by artificial intelligence, powered by machine learning, really. So machine learning driven computer vision took a couple of really important leaps forward that made it substantially more practical for the real world than it ever had been and brought it out of the back of the laboratory and to the forefront. And it was driven by a couple of tech innovations, some advances in, in, in you know, the in um, 
in the inexorable, I'm having trouble with the word, Moore's Law, and innovation driven by the driverless car people. And I saw that technology and thought to myself, this is cool. This will eventually lead to driverless cars. What else can we do with it? And so in 2016, I began thinking about other applications of the same suite of technologies. What can we do with it? And it occurred to me, you can use it to organize a warehouse in a different way to automate the process. And that led to thinking about, well, a grocery store is really a special kind of warehouse. And if you automate a grocery store, you save everyone's time by getting them in and out of the store much more quickly. And you save the store um, some operational costs and the whole system gets more efficient. And began working on that, filed some patents, eventually started building a team. And then here we are, uh, 100 employees working in Berkeley on checkout tree shopping. And why patents? Why, why did you go with the patents? I mean, typically they're very costly. Uh, they're very uncertain. And especially when you're at a very early stage, people, especially lawyers, you know, don't really recommend the, doing it. The good ones. The other ones, they want to get you on the, on the hour, no? billing you on the hour. But, but why did you go for the patents so early? Intellectual property control really matters. And so, so I've had some good experience with patents. Um, I've had some patents that I've filed that led to some, some nice revenue for me as an individual that weren't filed in the context of a company. Um, and IP control really matters. And the first three patents we filed, we filed in early 2016, which was before anybody was in the space. There was no prior art. So, so some of the others had not been founded or had, they had been working on it, but um, working on it in quiet. And so there was no prior art to our first filings, and we got very broad coverage. And so I'm optimistic about the patent coverage. Now, let me say quickly, we're not a, we're not a patent troll organization. We have, we have no intentions of going and suing anybody for infringing our patents, although there are already those that are doing it. We're, we're fine with a multiplayer space. The, the space for checkout-free shopping is enormous, and Gerbango's prepared to serve as much of it as is interested in working with us. But... Gerbango is not going to succeed or fail based on lawyers. That, that's, that's not our business, nor is it my value system. We're going to succeed or fail based on how well we do executing to plan. So what does checkout free shopping mean, especially for the people that are listening to get an idea and, and perhaps the, the, the visibility to what that looks like? Yeah, so, so we have two primary use cases. Um, one use case looks a lot like Uber. And so... The shopper digitally onboards themselves before entering the store, and that means they download an app and they upload their credit card to the app. Then they walk in the store, they gather the products they want, and they leave the store, and they pay through their, the app on their phone. looks a lot like using Uber, which is to say you don't ever give your driver money, and you don't use an old-fashioned credit card swipe machine. You just get in the car, take your ride, and get back out, and you tip through the app. We have that similar experience. We call it checkout-free shopping um, as built by Gerbango. In parallel with that, we have a different user interface on the same technology we call checkout-ready. And checkout-ready is for a different kind of user. It's for the user that either doesn't have a smartphone or is not tech-forward enough to, to want to use it for this application, or they don't have a credit card, or they simply want to pay cash, or they haven't been onboarded yet. This is the majority of society. So the majority of people who shop in a grocery store today um, don't want to pay through an app, at least not yet. And so that shopper enters a store, shops as normal, and then pays the cashier using whatever means they want. Could be credit card, could be cash, could be personal check, could be SNAP or WIC benefits, government assistance of some form, could be Apple Pay, whatever. The payment form is human to human, shopper to cashier. 
And the only thing that's changed for them is the barcode scanning step has been removed. And so the line gets 80% shorter and therefore 80% faster. The person gets in and out of the store more quickly. But that shopper, the checkout ready shopper, doesn't need to learn any new technology and doesn't need to have a bank account. They could be an unbanked member of society and they still get to use the store. And that inclusivity is super important. The, the idea that Silicon Valley is building technology only for its own members is an idea that really bothers me. I want technology that we build to be available to everybody. And so that checkout ready approach is a super important part of the Gerbango business plan. I love it. I love it, especially not having to do the lines, you know, when, when you're checking out and stuff like that. So very, very nice. And in this case, I'm sure that uh, you guys had it a little bit easier at raising money, Will, especially given your track record. Yeah, so, so partly I'm now a known quantity, so it makes it easier for me to get meetings to get into the door. And um, the, the business is much easier to understand than the Pandora business. And so the effect that we have on shoppers and on retailers alike is, is much easier to explain. So we're not really having any trouble raising money. We're, we're raising money fine. We have fantastic investors. We have a fantastic team of people that are turning the investment dollars into product values. It's going really well over here. So probably now you're able to compare, you know, the fundraising journey with Pandora and now the fundraising journey with Grabango. Uh, and I'm sure that that there are certain critical aspects that now you really understand about storytelling because storytelling is everything when you're fundraising or when you're onboarding customers or partners or whatever that is. So what have you learned about storytelling, Will? You know, it, it's all about empathy. And so whether I'm talking to an investor, I'm talking to a customer, or frankly, I'm talking to my kids, you need to put your, yourself in their mind's eye. And so in the case of an investor, if I'm saying, hey, invest in me because I want it and because I want to go play around with my oscilloscope and my computer programming language, that's not a very good investment pitch. That's sort of a self-centered, gimme, gimme, gimme pitch. And investors shouldn't give money to that entrepreneur. But if I say, give me a dollar because I'm going to go build something useful for the world, it's going to be profitable. And in three or five years, I'm going to give you back $10. You'll make money and the world will benefit. That's a much better investor pitch. And all it takes is just a tiny little bit of empathy in their position because investors are not um, magicians shuffling cash out of a helicopter. They're investing for business too. They have a constituency to serve also. And you have to have the empathy to understand um, what they're doing and why they're doing it. And you have to offer them an investment that makes financial sense for them as well. And that it's, it's, a, it's a relatively small insight, but it drives the entire conversation. Yeah, and that drives the way you build the business. Yeah, no, I can totally get that. Uh, I think that, you know, like obviously the, the one of the things that I always say is that the founders that are able to really um, perform well when it comes to, to fundraising is, is the ones that are able to listen. And not the ones that are able to listen to questions, but the ones that are able to fulfill the concerns that are behind those questions. Was that also your experience? Yeah, 100% agree. 100% agree. Very nice. Uh, and, and, and in your case, how much capital have you guys raised for Grabango to date? $27 million into the company so far. And I'm sure that now you really learned uh, not only people doing due diligence on you, but uh, also you doing due diligence on them. So what kind of uh, wisdom words would you have for the people that are listening, you know, that perhaps are thinking about getting money from someone or from someone else? Um. Yeah. So, so you, you, when you're raising money, you're sort of hiring someone. So you're hiring someone to be on your investment team, whether they're a board member 
or whether they're a, uh, a member of the investment community, they're on your team. And they're, they're in a certain sense your coworker. And so you're not just trying to raise money. You're trying to decide, is that person across the table from you during the conversation someone you want to work with for the next five years of your life? And if it's not, it doesn't matter how much money they're going to give you because you don't want to work with them. And if they're awesome, you want to work with them, and maybe they want to work with you too. But, but it's, it's much more like hiring than it is like making a purchasing decision. Very cool. And let's say in this case, Will, let's say you go to sleep tonight. And uh, you wake up all of a sudden five years from now. And you wake up in a world where the vision of Grabango has been fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, let, let me cast back to the part of the conversation about Pandora. If I go into a coffee shop today and I see some people sitting at a table wearing the, the classic white headphones, listening to music, I know there's some chance, not 100%, but there's some chance they're listening to a piece of technology that I built several years ago. And that makes me feel really good. I don't know the people. I don't even know if they're using it, but I know there's some chance they're using my stuff. Um, the vision for Grabango is similar, but broader. I want to go into the grocery store where I currently shop and the convenience store where I, where I maybe swing in for a soda and a can of chip or a bag of chips and see people using that store and walking out without waiting in lines, that would make me really, really happy. To know that's happening across the city, across the country, and around the world, that just people are using it would just delight me. Very nice. So I guess now, you know, like with, with your experiences with all these companies, I mean, it's, uh, it's remarkable what, uh, what you have been able to learn, no? and, and the, the good, the bad, and the ugly also, no? because the a journey of an entrepreneur is not such thing as a straight line. I guess if you had, you know, the opportunity, and this is a question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, if you had the opportunity to speak to your younger self, well, maybe that younger self uh, that was entering the valley or, or about to launch your, your first business, knowing what you know now, what piece of advice would you give to that younger Will uh, before launching a business and why? It's funny you ask that question because I spent a lot of time mentoring younger teams starting companies. And so I have, I have several things I say over and over and over again. And one of them is that building a company is a lot like, is a lot like a Jackson Pollock painting. So I think of myself as a splat of one color paint on the canvas. And you can't expect yourself to cover the canvas with your one color paint. No one is that broadly skilled. You have to build a team that has overlapping skills. So my splat of blue and your splat of red and her splat of yellow and his splat of green together combine in overlapping ways to cover the canvas with skill sets. And so building any company is all about building a team that's got the right skills, personalities, and aptitudes to either know how to do a thing or figure out how to do a thing. And building a company, I'm sorry, building a product is about building a company and building a company is about building the team. So it's all about team. It always is. Got it. And I guess uh, you were referring to that, especially when, when talking about cultures and teams and, and how you've seen that on Pandora and, and now on Grabango. What does it look like when a culture is working and a culture is powerful and, you know, it's really creating that, that type of magic? You know, a great sign is how does an organization handle a mistake? And so nobody's perfect. Everyone makes mistakes, particularly when you're building newness, when you're building a thing that hasn't been built before you're going to make a mistake. And in fact, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And the closer to the edge of newness you are, the more false starts you're going to have. And, and standard advice is, you know, fail fast and all that stuff. And that's true. That's, that's completely valid. But a healthy culture um, 
values those mistakes. And so if I walk, if I get to a fork in the road and I take five steps down the wrong path, I realize I'm on the wrong path and I turn around and I come back and my team is there looking at me saying, Will, I'm so glad you figured out that was the wrong path. Let's go down this other path together. That's a win. And if I walk my five steps back, my team says, you idiot, you took the wrong path. That's a lose. And so a culture that embraces mistakes and jointly learns from them. So any individual makes a mistake, but you don't repeat them and you learn from them. That's a sign that a lot in the culture is working really well. And if there's finger pointing and there's, there's vindictive behavior and there's moat building and all that stuff, that's a sign that something broadly is broken in your culture. And so in much of high technology and certainly in Gurbango, we have a lot of really, really smart people. And the people here were all the smartest kid in high school, the smartest kid in college, probably the smartest kid in their first company. And now they're among their peers. We have a lot of really bright people here. But they're high EQ as well. And so this team really bands together and pulls in the same direction because everybody wants to succeed. There's not a lot of blame, but, but that's not to say that no one makes mistakes. People do, but the mistakes don't linger because no one's afraid to admit them. It's, it, that, that's what a positive culture looks like. And in your team, Will, how do you guys go about reflection? How do we, I'm sorry, I didn't see the word reflection. Because, because obviously when you make mistakes, what is important also is to reflect so that you're able to bounce back and, and perhaps, you know, like get that breakdown to lead you into a breakthrough. So how does reflection, you know, for example, in, in the Grabango culture look like? Yeah, in some cases, it's, it's a formalized postmortem. So in some cases where the mistake was a big institutional error, you'll get the people involved in it, either the people that, that made the incorrect decision or the people that were forced to act on it. And you look at it and you say, what could we have known? Could we have avoided this with better knowledge or better judgment? And if not, what do we do now to fix it? Those are how you deal with the larger ones. The smaller ones happen in the course of business. And I say, you know, hey, Joanne, I know I said before that I wanted the green one and I've thought about it and I, I saw the guys across the street try the green one. And in fact, the green's not the right idea. I apologize. We should go blue. I think we should do blue and not green. And those little minor course corrections happen all the time. And it's only the big ones that need the proper postmortem. The little ones, you just happen. And if, if it's a healthy culture, you embrace the change and move forward. Of course. Will, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, Twitter works. LinkedIn works. There's a lot of ways to connect with us. The website has a contact page on it. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure that we have that on the on the notes. So thank you so much, Will, for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Great to talk to you, Alejandro. Appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.